Hello, my name is Benjamin Smithell, and uh, welcome to the third episode of the Theology Seeking Faith in Durham, Great Mysteries of Biblical Faith podcast. Today I'm going to be explaining why I personally don't choose to call the Scriptures of Israel the Old Testament. And you can read the full blog post if you prefer to read rather than listen on my um, theology blog at theologyseekingfaithindurham.wordpress.com. So the question of how we modern-day Christians ought to refer to the first half of the Bible, the scriptures which came out of and were written by the people of Israel, was first raised with me in one of my first lectures in biblical studies in my first year at university by the excellent Reverend Professor Walter R.W.L. Mobley. He astutely pointed out that the term the Old Testament was unfortunately a biased and partial term which seemed to exclude the Jews who also observe its commands and laws and who also see it as their holy and sacred text. I had never heard anyone before mention this to me and I was rather struck by it and immediately understood that while such a term could just be dismissed quickly as minutiae or pedantic semantics, this would be inaccurate and a mistake as such a term that is used so widely, so often, so frequently in theology and biblical studies would have so many connotations attached to it and so could lead to a number of misunderstandings regarding Christian theology. Following on from this, Mobley went on to explain that he instead chooses to call what is what are commonly referred to as the Old Testament, uh, a first of all call them the scriptures of Israel, and he sees this term, as I do, as a more broad and inclusive term which can then include Jews who also see this text as their holy sacred scripture. This could in turn improve and ease the relations between Christians and Jews and could be helpful linguistically for dialogue, conversation, interfaith discussion and Christian mission and outreach to Jews. Additionally, I've thought of a number of other reasons why I think it is unwise to use this term the Old Testament. One such reason is that it implies that the scriptures of Israel are somehow of a lesser secondary order and are therefore less important, relevant and significant for Christians today. This is obviously not true, as the whole Bible Christians believe is the word of God, and so all of it is consistent, relevant, important and significant today. Now another problem with calling it the Old Testament is that it is one of a number of factors that can lead some evangelical Christians, particularly some conservative evangelical Christians, to wrongly, falsely and misleadingly argue that you cannot gain any insight, meaning or transferable, relevant and significant understanding from the Old Testament without reading it retrospectively and solely in, by and through the light of Christ in hindsight, looking back. This is very dangerous and damaging as it fails to understand that both Jews at the time of Jesus' life and also before his virgin birth gained a huge amount of wisdom, truth, knowledge, morals and understanding from their scriptures all without having Jesus' life, death and resurrection and without foreknowing in advance that this was to come. Sometimes I think there is a danger when trying to read the scriptures of Israel as uh, always and solely through the lens of the light of Christ that we can sometimes read things into it that aren't actually there, were never intended to be there. And so we're looking for something that's not really there and was never actually intended by the original author to be there. It would be a little bit like um, Monsieur Hercule Poirot 
looking for a murderer when a murder hadn't already actually taken place. Now, there are some when he can foresee that circumstance, but if there were no murder, it would be a bit of an odd one. It also reminds me of a coffee tasting session I went to recently, where when you pour out the coffee without any milk, when you pour it out initially, there's a form of sort of beige scum that forms on top of the dark brown uh, coffee solution. And depending on how it's been poured out, this will differ from uh, cup to cup. And some people, because uh, it's quite subjective, what, what the uh, picture that's formed by the scum and the darker coffee background is. Some people say it's a wave, some people say it's a cloud, some people say it's an ocean or whatever. And people say, wow, that's a very alternative interpretation, a very odd, unexpected um, perspective a thing that you've seen, perhaps you've just imagined it, perhaps you've read that into it, that, perhaps that's because you want to see it, or perhaps you're seeing only things that you're familiar with. Um, and that's something that, that a famous physicist once said, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, uh, we only see what we know. And that's the real Kierkegaardian paradox of how can we see and seek and look for things that we don't yet know of or know intimately. Anyway, that's an aside. So we sometimes look for, specifically search for typologies, analogies, similes, foreshadowings, um, you know, uh, imitations, precursors, metaphors that are not necessarily there or are not necessarily intended by the author and are not therefore a legitimate or close reading of the text. And this is, for me, um, or, or not necessarily what the text itself intrinsically suggests or implies. And this is a very interesting point for me because whenever I've done a lot of Bible study with some conservative evangelicals, you know, the, the average sort of ones, as it were, um, they have, I don't mean that in a demeaning sense, I just mean the average one as in like a, a, a most uh, commonly occurring one. They often, you know, really focus firmly on who wrote this, who were they, who were they writing to, when, why, where, what was their audience, etc. And then we look at the author's original intent and yet here they seem to sideline that a little. For example, I have personally gained a huge deal of insight into the human condition, the nature of God, the nature of creation, morals and knowledge about the beliefs, practices and doctrines of Christianity solely through reading the books of Genesis, the Psalms, the Proverbs, the Song of Songs, without reading it retrospectively or solely in by or through the, the, the light of Christ, in hindsight, or looking back or retrospectively. This is how Jews today and Jews before the virgin birth of Jesus read these texts, and there is nothing wrong with that mode and style and hermeneutical interpretive grid of reading the text. And there's no problem with it also being used by modern Christians today, indeed that better, that mode better, aligns with the initial original intention of the authors, even though we are now living in a time that is after the historical, literal and scientific event of the resurrection, even though we've accepted Christ and his sacrifice and subsequent glorious and triumphal resurrection. This mode of reading is just one mode for Christians, and it's not the most important that is through the lens of, the, of uh, the light of Christ, but it is still a valid, legitimate, and important way, style, and mode of reading, and we should not neglect it at the cost or expense of reading the light of Christ. 
It's a both and, not an either or. And so we should not sacrifice reading the text in and of itself on the altar of reading the text in the light of Christ. The reading the text in the light of Christ is not an optional extra for the Christian, but it is a real bonus, right? And so it's a both and. Now, another reason why I don't like to call it the Old Testament and I don't like to always choose to read the scriptures of Israel solely retrospectively and in mind through the light of Christ in hindsight and looking back is that they are in and of themselves, is that it implies that they are in and of themselves intrinsically, inherently not part of God's word or at least are a less important or lesser secondary part of God's word, which is obviously not true for any Christian. We need to understand and be aware of the fact that those who wrote each of the books of the scriptures of Israel were themselves Jews, as Jesus himself was during his life, and that they did not, at least not all of them did, know or know of the future event, uh, events of the virgin birth, life, work, death and resurrection of the Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. They were all writing with their own intentions, thoughts, desires, backgrounds, upbringings, beliefs, motivations, which cannot all simply be reduced to how the question of how would a Christian in the future after the death, after the resurrection of Christ, of which I didn't know anyway, of any way, read this retrospectively in hindsight, in by and through the light of Christ. Because, you know, the term Christian and the term Christianity made no sense. No one knew what it meant at that time. They didn't know or know of the resurrection of Christ. And so they weren't looking forward to that. And they weren't looking forward to that to find out why they were writing it then. This is to carry out a very bizarre retrospective uh, eisegesis on a huge scale um, and to read a great deal into the text wrongly and illegitimately that isn't there. We also need to remember that none of the writers of the scripture, um, the scripture knew as far as we know um, from historical records and the text themselves that what they were writing, um, <clears throat> sorry, that they were writing things which would then, in the future, um, and after their deaths generally, become part of the canon, become part of the Bible. There is no evidence that they knew this, at the time of writing anyway. Another point I'd say is that a problem with calling the scriptures of Israel the Old Testament implies that there is discontinuity and change and inconsistency in the way that God chooses to deal with his people between the Old and New Testaments. It implies and suggests that the two halves of Scripture contain, each contain dramatically and radically different covenants, testaments and agreements, and that God dealt very differently with his people and in different ways between the Old and New Testaments. This idea that he dealt differently it, is clearly not true. There is consistency um, and that is really important. Um, because if we're to hold to the immutability and infallibility and perfection of God, and if we're to hold that he doesn't change and all that is plan and that he's outside of time, then it just follows from that. Because if you are perfect, you're perfect in every way. And so if you change at all in any way, then you're imperfect. Also, if you're in time, you're subject to change. And if you're in space, you're subject to change. 
So if you're saying God's outside of space and outside of time uh, and he's perfect, all of those things, each of them in and of their own right, but even more so together, rule out the God changing and rule out him being mutable. Additionally, he's also, you know, unfathomable, completely outside of time, he's timeless, atemporal, and also he's completely beyond human and physical understanding. This means that both he, his nature, and his plan for salvation, the way of dealing with humans, has always been the same, is the same today, and has and will always be the same. And so there is no change with God or his plan. It remains constant and consistent. And we must trust in it. And we can trust in it. It will ensure, it will endure, it will persevere, and it will sustain to the very end. The phrase, the Old Testament, suggests that those that in those texts, God's people were saved by sacrifices of animals, by attendance at the synagogue regularly, by works, by works of the law, by obeying the law. This is not true, was never true, and never will be true. There are a number of biblical passages, even in the scriptures of Israel, the Old Testament as it were, and there are a number of passages in the New Testament, the Christian scriptures, which interpret parts of the Old Testament, which clearly demonstrate that the whole of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation shows consistently that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. That's an atemporal, timeless thing. It's completely not subject to the confines of time. It's from beginning to end, if beginning made sense and end made sense uh, outside of time. This is clearly shown in the heroes of faith or the hall of fame of, of uh, patriarchs and prophets and leaders in the Old Testament, as it is often referred to in Hebrews chapter 11, which discusses all of the major figures in the Old Testament and their life, their works, um, and their obedience to God. And it shows that they were all saved by grace alone, through faith in Jesus Christ alone, in God alone. So it says, you know, Abraham, um, he did many things wrong, as we read throughout the book of Genesis, particularly the second half. He let down his wife, he committed adultery unnecessarily due to a lack of faith in God and him providing children. You know, he wasn't always as faithful and trusting as he should have been. All of these things, you know, he, he arguably, you know, left Hagar and Ishmael out in the lurch and, you know, was favouritist towards his new Isaac, all these kind of things. And yet he was still saved. Why? Because he trusted in the law completely. He was, he was, he said, behold the Lord, I will listen to him. You know, he immediately attentive to the Lord and his command and he really put all of his trust in him and so that's what saved him not any words because he was fallible he was fallen he was sinful he was broken additionally with Abraham it's worth bearing in mind that he was not um, circumcised he didn't have the law there weren't any synagogues at the time yeah performed any animal sacrifice at that time and yet nevertheless he was still saved and so it can't be through works of the law it can't be through obeying commands it can't be through sacrifices it can't be through regular attendance at the synagogue it has to be by grace alone accepting and receiving the grace of god through faith alone listening to him hearing him following him obeying him but not works next point i'd like to make is that at this point a lot of people will say hang on a second how could someone at the time of the scriptures of Israel, during their writing, or before the virgin birth, 
who was born, lived and died before the virgin birth of Jesus, be saved by Jesus' future subsequent sacrifice on the cross, which they didn't know and of which they didn't know. Now, this is a very good question and one which Soren Kierkegaard astutely addresses throughout his work. Um, he argued that Christianity is all about making a, an eternal, timeless, atemporal decision from within time. So you're making a decision about the eternal, you're making a decision about someone outside of space and time who's invisible. You're doing it from within a visible, material, spatial, temporal, time-restricted perspective in this world from a spatial, temporal body. While on the one hand, we must and should and need to say that the incarnation, virgin birth, life, works, miracles, crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ were all literal, historical, temporal and scientific events in one sense, they were also simultaneously on another level, eternal, everlasting, timeless, atemporal events without a beginning, without a middle and without an end, whose effects were everlasting and eternal. They have no beginning, no middle and no end because they are everlasting, have always been there, will always be there and are there today. This is again part of understanding God and understanding that he, his nature and his plan for salvation are things which have always been consistent, are consistent today, they're a temporal, they're timeless, they're completely outside of space and time. Acts chapter 4 verses 27 to 28 and Revelation 13 verse 8 Furthermore, make this clear, that God foreknew, he knew in advance, that we humans were going to sin and to fall, and that Jesus, God's only son, would be required to redeem us, to rescue us, and to save us from our sins, and to give us the opportunity to have an eternal life with God. That's why in Acts chapter 4, verses 27 to 28, it says, For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. That is a very paradoxical and mystical set of verses which sheds light on the apparent paradox and apparent antinomy right at the heart and epicentre of Christian theology. Revelation 13, 8 enforces this in most English translations as it states that all shall worship him, the Lamb, who was slain before the universe began. Well, before the universe began, humans had not yet been created and hadn't yet fallen or sinned. And so, you know, this makes a great deal of sense because God clearly knew in advance that, you know, that's what they do when he created them and before he even created them. So he would have to bring about um, uh, and would need a salvation plan. The American theologian, pastor and preacher John Piper has also pointed out that we cannot just treat the crucifixion of Jesus, God's one and only son and God himself, united in the divine triune Godhead as just an afterthought Afterthought to the fall. God clearly foreknew this would happen and knew it in advance because he is omniscient, all-knowing, and has perfect and complete and certain divine foreknowledge. He has perfect, full, complete, infallible knowledge of the past, the present, and the future all at once. And he views them all in one current, eternal, atemporal, 
timeless, unchanging present. It's all there before him, all at once, all in one view. And you can zoom in at certain areas and look in certain places, but it's all there all at once. It's very hard for us to really image and imagine and picture. Piper then goes on to then went on to point out that it's not as if Jesus suddenly jumped up on the cross and you know God said, Oh, I didn't expect that to happen. <laughs> because that would imply uh, that would anthropomorphize God, that would imply that he didn't know the future, and he can just guess or grab at straws on the future, you know, or that it's an estimate, which it isn't true. And that's an, a heretical view of open theism, which is that God doesn't really know the future. Because you know, we don't know the future either, so how is God different from us? It anthropomorphizes and demotes God to our level. On top of all of this, there are 68 specific and particular prophecies of the coming of the Messiah and his life, death and resurrection in the scriptures of Israel, the Old Testament. And there are numerous, at least 22 typologies, precursors and foreshadowings of his life, crucifixion and resurrection in the scriptures of Israel. And I think that's really important because this shows that it was the plan of God right from the beginning I'd also just point out that the, the term the Old Testament, uh, the, the, the Old Testament right from the book of Genesis to the book of Malachi clearly and firmly shows again and again and again that we humans are imperfect, fallen, broken and sinful and that we don't meet the requirements or demands of the law and so need someone outside of us who is perfect and innocent to save us and to step in and impute his righteousness to us. I think this pattern of God ordaining certain laws for his glory and our good and our welfare and well-being and then us choosing to disobey them and rebel and face the negative consequences to, to reap what we sow is shown particularly well in the books of Genesis, Exodus, Judges, Hosea, Samuel and Jeremiah. The term the Old Testament is in and of itself complicit in the misleading but all too common view that Judaism and Christianity are complete polar opposites which are diametrically opposed to each other, inherently contradict each other and are mutually exclusive. It denies the existence of Jewish Christianity, Christian Judaism, Messianic Judaism and the profound extensive and deep Jewish roots foundation and basis of Jesus himself was a Jew. He obeyed all the laws set out in the Torah perfectly. He met all the requirements and demands of the Mosaic law. And he observed the Sabbath and attended Jewish festivals such as the Passover. The entire New Testament, or Christian scriptures, and its gospel message would make no sense whatsoever without the historical context and theological background of the scriptures of Israel as the Reverend Professor Walter R.W.L. Mobley has, point, has rightly pointed out. With regard to the question of whether or not modern day Christians ought to today obey all of the Mosaic laws contained within the Torah, I think you really have to deeply, extensively and thoroughly decipher each individual law separately, individually and bit by bit, categorising and sorting them into the three following categories 
the moral law, the civil law, and the ceremonial law. All of the moral laws contained within the Torah are still fully applicable, transferable, and in force today. The civil law, as a general concept, is still in force today. See Paul's statement that Christians should obey and abide by all the rules set by earthly, secular, governmental authorities in Romans chapters 12 to 13. But the specific individual and particular laws set by the government of ancient Israel are not necessarily still applicable today unless they just happen to coincide with the laws which have subsequently been kept in force or reintroduced by our secular government today. As to the ceremonial law, we Christians know, and those of us who accept Christ, that Christ has already fulfilled all the requirements and demands of the ceremonial law in, by and through his redeeming, rescuing, saving, uh, atoning sacrifice on the cross uh, and his crucifixion and subsequent glorious resurrection. So we fortunately do not have to make endless sacrifices to try in some way to please God. Now I am not particularly bothered generally or worried by those who have already accepted Christ um, but now choose voluntarily to obey the commands of the Mosaic law contained within the Torah. For example, it is neither here nor there to me personally if one who has accepted Christ chooses today not to eat bacon, black pudding or shellfish or not to wear clothes of mixed fibres. That is totally up to them, is none of my business and is itself a personal choice. Some people see their acts of obedience to the Mosaic law today as a form of worship, service and submission to God. It does not bother me so long as they make it clear that this is optional for those who accept Christ and that it does not in any way or sense have any part to play in their salvation and it is not what saves them. Otherwise, the cross would have been pointless and in vain and unnecessary. And Jesus would not have had to come to earth in the first have had to have come to earth in the first place. However, either they accept and abide by all of the Mosaic laws, none of them, or only the moral and civic laws which coincide with those of our government today. To really be consistent if they were to say that they obeyed all of the Mosaic laws in the Torah, they would, in my view, have to um, speak, campaign and vote for capital punishment for all sexually active homosexuals, for instance, which almost all Christians, including myself, obviously, would today see as very bizarre, very unloving and very unjust and would make a mockery of the cross. So I can hear you saying, well, what's the answer then, Ben? You've set out the problems with using this term, what's the answer? Well, Walter Mobley has also astutely pointed out that it would, be, it would not be accurate to refer to the scriptures of Israel as the Hebrew Bible either, largely because parts of it, including sections from the books of Daniel and Ezra, were not actually written originally in Hebrew, but were instead originally written in Aramaic. And also, I'd say, personally, because it seems to suggest that the scriptures of Israel are in and of themselves a complete whole um, scriptural text in unity. Now Christians obviously would not agree with this, or 
And now Jews might, but then it would be a biased term. And that's the problem here. Uh, because then you get back to the problem with using the word Old Testament and being half and being a uh, arguing a bit lesser half and etc. Implying that. So as you know, I refuse to call the scriptures of Israel the Old Testament. You're probably wondering how I choose to refer to what most Christians today call the New Testament, as it would make no sense to still call it the New Testament if there are no longer an Old Testament in contrast with it and to compare it referentially and contrastively with. Well, uh, and comparatively with it. Well, again, I agree with Mobley in that I believe that they should be called the Christian scriptures. This is because only Christians see them as part of their holy texts, and only they see it as part of the canon of scripture. Now, in terms of how most Christians today view the purpose, role, applicability, and relevance of the Mosaic law in the Torah slash Pentateuch, they tend to call themselves supersessionists, or replacement theologians, or even fulfillment theologians, with the latter term being very rare generally. I'm not too keen personally myself on the first two terms, that is, supersessionists and replacement theologians here, as they both seem to be somewhere on the way to slipping into the heretical trap of Marcionism. Marcionism was an early Christian heresy which argued that Jesus was our Redeemer and Saviour, but rejected the scriptures of Israel, the Old Testament, and the God of Israel to whom they referred. The system stated that the God portrayed in the scriptures of Israel is an angry, spiteful, vengeful, evil, retaliatory, retributive, wrathful, unloving God, and that he was separate, a separate and lesser deity and being to the all-loving, all-good and all-forgiving God portrayed in the Christian scriptures. It essentially argued that the God of the Christian scriptures is the polar opposite and the, di and the diametrically opposed mirror image of the God of the New Testament. And so the belief system is really a dualism. So it believes that they're uh, to be two separate and completely different divine forces at work in the world. Marcionism even goes so far as to say that the God of the scriptures of Israel himself is the devil and is our enemy and evil person. So this belief system removes an entire collection of Israeli scriptures from the canon and from the Bible, and also rejected all of the letters and gospels, um, which would then become the 27 books of the Christian scriptures, the New Testament. <clears throat> it solely included 11 books, which are a gospel consisting of 10 different sections drawn from the Gospel of Luke, and then 10 sections from the Pauline epistles, the Pauline letters. It is very scary and very worrying, in my opinion, to hear how many people today argue that the God of the scriptures of Israel, of the Old Testament, seems to be a different God in character and personality to the God of the New Testament or the Christian scriptures, who is seen as all-loving and all-forgiving exclusively. Right? Uh, whereas the Old Testament God is, is wrathful, vengeful, and spiteful, and unforgiving, and unjust, and etc. Actually, the picture is much more complicated, nuanced, and, and mixed um, in both halves of our modern-day Bible today. Um, and that's really important, because it's not just in the Old Testament, God seems on the surface at first reading to be you know, wrathful and evil, 
and then actually on second it's also loving as well but the new testament there's also righteous indignation righteous anger righteous wrath and justice and it's that tension that apparent antinomy between holding love justice love forgiveness care mercy on the one hand but also holding it in tension simultaneously at the same time with justice being done and the law and its requirements and demands it's worth bearing in mind that jesus himself did not invent forgiveness or at least jesus in human form on earth at that time did not uh, invent forgiveness at that point obviously god himself invented forgiveness because it's a good thing and he created all things and as jesus was god he invented forgiveness but not during that late temporal period uh, on earth and so the concept of forgiveness is set is first set out actually uh, in the book of leviticus um, where we are told to love our neighbor and forgive our neighbor and this is something which jesus quotes back to cites and refers to in the gospels indeed mercy love and forgiveness are perfectly showcased in the books of hosea and exodus where god never gives up on his own people and where they repeatedly disobey and even uh, go against his will <clears throat> in the book of hosea Gomer is constantly unfaithful to her husband Hosea, but he still forgives her and takes her back each and every time. This is a perfect metaphor, an analogy for God's love of his people, the people of Israel, and today the church, and the people that make that institution up. This is also shown in God's pledge after the flood in the book of Genesis that he would never again pour out his wrath in that same way. Why? Because he is a loving, forgiving God and because he understands that the pouring out of wrath in such a way does not necessarily lead to the change of the human heart as the human heart is itself defiled, wicked, um, defiled, wicked evil and sinful. And that, I think, is very important. Furthermore, in the Christian scriptures, Jesus himself shows his wrath and righteous anger and righteous indignation, righteous wrath, when he rightly and justly insults the Pharisees and points out their hypocrisies and double standards. And when he turns over the tables in anger, in the temple, the protest of his house being used as a mere consumerist, materialist, selfish market. It's worth bearing in mind that no one was hurt or injured, but it was to show I'm angry at this, this is wrong and it's right that I should be angry at it. I'm not going to hurt anyone or harm anyone, but I need them to know that. Now, if you think about it, this is good because it would be wrong and would rightly shock us if God were happy rather than angry, angry at each individual instance of justice and injust, uh, of injustice and injustice itself. So, for example, if I were to get married and then my wife were to commit adultery and I were to relay this to my mother because I was very sad about it, it would be very shocking and very disappointing if my mother would be very happy and elated by that. I would expect her to be shocked, to be appalled, to be saddened, to, to feel sympathy for me and 
here that's shown to be the same with God he would do that he would show that sympathy now this reading of the Old Testament and this general view of it this theology of it is not about replacement or superseding or supersession it's about fulfillment as Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 8 to 18 where he says most importantly before I go on to the Sermon on the Mount and what and the different um, ways I'm going to interpret the Old Testament law and the way I'm going to show you the real meaning of it I'm going to make sure I'm going to say at the start before that I have not come to overthrow or abolish or delete or press backspace on the law I've not come to overthrow it to overrule it to override it none of that I've come to fulfill it I've come to give it true deep full profound extensive meaning and I've come to do that for the law and the prophets the Old Testament the Tanakh whatever you want to call it now I'm very cautious myself of saying anything like the following statement the Christian scriptures have superseded or replaced the scriptures of Israel as this again seems to me to imply that the Christian scriptures are more important the New Testament is more important is truly God's word whereas the Old Testament the scriptures of Israel are of a secondary or lesser order and are therefore not really God's word or at least not God's word today for us modern Christians it seems to reduce the role the function the purpose of the scriptures of Israel to merely being the historical context and theological background to the Christian scriptures however this does not feel sufficient or adequate as the scriptures of Israel have deep rooted and valuable meaning in and of themselves inherently in addition to the extra meaning that is then given to them subsequently um, when reading them in the light of Christ as Walter Mobley has again pointed out. The term supersessionism and replacement theology both seem to suggest that we are only obliged as Christians to read, study and understand and familiarise ourselves with the exclusively Christian scriptures. To use a modern relatable example here, if I were to start a new treatment for my eczema, my skin, to replace the old treatment, I would or supersede the old treatment even, I would no longer use the old treatment, it would become redundant, pointless, needless and unnecessary, and I would never refer back to it. Now, while I accept that for today's modern day Gentile Christians, just reading a list of Levitical ceremonial hygiene, sanitary laws, or sacrificial laws, may seem a little tedious and monotonous. It is worth bearing in mind that we need to look behind each individual law itself to the person to whom it points, Jesus, and the goodness of the lawgiver and the source of goodness, who is also goodness itself, God. As Brooksy Cavey, the American theologian once put it we use the word of god in print to connect with the word of god in person that is jesus additionally we must remember that the vast vast majority of the old testament or scriptures of israel is not actually written in the form of sets of commandments that is only the first five out of the 36 um, Old Testament books but is instead written in multiple narratives and stories through which we can begin to gain a glimpse of God's perfect nature and to begin better understanding the human condition and the relation of God to man 
So that's the end of today's podcast. I just wanted, before I left, to thank you for all, all for tuning in and I look forward to you listening to the next episode. I hope you found that useful, helpful and a blessing. And I'm just going to finish with um, two books that I that I've, I found very helpful and I'd recommend on this area. The first one is The Theology of the Old Testament, Reading the Hebrew Bible as Christian Scripture by the Reverend Professor Walter R. W. L. Mobley. And the other book I'd recommend is The Rebirth and Restoration of Israel by Murray Dixon. Thanks for listening and uh, hope you tune in next time.